0: Hey guys, ready for QuackCast 35, another interminable lecture on influenza. Are you sick of flu? I'm not sick of flu. I am sick of my intro, so I'm not going to say it this time. If you really want to hear the intros, go back to the old podcast. Now, this is a reconfiguration of my science-based medicine blog on the topic. And if you have read that, sorry, there are some additional points to be made, which will be made in this podcast. And I intend to do more reconfiguring of the science-based medicine posts for this quack cast. All I need to do is to add more smart-ass, right? Now, I guess I will spend the remaining flu season writing and talking about the nonsense that is promulgated about both the flu vaccine and influenza. Last week, I spent a morning trundling around the hospital giving flu vaccines and talking with anyone who would listen about its benefits. Lots of conversations with my colleagues about the flu shot, or as the English call it, the jab. Now, there's some good marketing. You want the jab? Jeez. One of the more common laments about the flu vaccine is that it doesn't work. They say, I got the flu vaccine and I still got the flu. Well, maybe, maybe not. It takes a few weeks to get antibody protection, so the flu could have developed before the antibody response to the vaccine. And, of course, the vaccine will not protect you against the too numerous to count other viruses that circulate each winter with the influenza. So, perhaps you had adenovirus but thought it was the flu. But then there is the evidence. Some of the readers of the blog are worried that the literature does not support the use of the vaccine. Quote, My research for good studies on the efficacy of seasonal flu so far has left me wondering if I've somehow missed the good research. Tom Jefferson of the Cochrane Institute says that most studies are of poor methodologic quality and the impact of co-founders is high. I agree. Please, could you refer me to some of the best studies on the efficacy of seasonal flu vaccine? After a critical appraisal of the best studies you know of, I would like to submit the same for publication in the interest of science. Now, why some listeners think I am a research librarian, I do not know, and it is not an uncommon request. As an aside, I have a full-time job, I have a family to raise, don't be asking me to do your grunt work. It's called PubMed. Use it. But the topic of this quack cast concerns the efficacy of the flu vaccine, and I am going to limit myself to the use of the vaccine in adults. Now, this may be more of a lecture than usual, so don't listen to this podcast while driving. It will put you to sleep, and the next thing you know, bam, you're in a tree. However, at the end of this, I'm going to go through the 18 reasons why you should not vaccinate your children against the flu vaccine by Bill Sarday and advertised by Dr. Mercola, who, as is usually the case, gets it all wrong. Now, I am the first to admit, well, maybe not the first, that the flu vaccine is not our best vaccine for at least three reasons. First, Every year, they have to make an educated guess which influenza strains will be circulating nine months in the future. The better the guess, the better the protection the vaccine should provide. Some years, they choose better than others, but often the match between the vaccine and the disease is not optimal, so vaccine efficacy can be decreased. The vaccine works best when there is a good antigenic match between the vaccine and the circulating strain of influenza. Third. The response to the vaccine is not 100%. The older and more immunocompetent are least likely to develop a good antibody response to the vaccine. There's a bit of medical irony. But the more likely a patient is to need protection from the vaccine, the less likely they are to get a protective antibody response from that vaccine. And second, vaccination rates are often suboptimal to get any benefit in populations, i.e. herd immunity. The elderly will more likely benefit if they are not exposed to influenza at all, rather than relying on vaccine-mediated protection. It may be more important if those around them, say their healthcare provider or family, receives the vaccine as a result does not pass flu on to more vulnerable people. But we rarely, never, ever, ever, never, ever, get vaccination rates up to levels where you would think herd immunity would kick in. Now, that would be a great way to kill granny if you stand to inherit, however. Just get the flu and cough on her. So, it's a suboptimal vaccine, and that's a problem. One, because it will make it more difficult to prove efficacy in clinical studies, and two, there is a subgroup of anti-vaccine goofs who seem to require that vaccines either be perfect, with 100% efficacy and 100% safe, or they are not worth taking. I would note that alt-medicine proponents seem to love the binary approach. A therapy either works for everything or it doesn't work at all. Their cause of disease, like acupuncture or chiropractic, is the cause of all disease. And that binary approach is often what separates the alties from the non-alties. The influenza vaccine is not 100% efficacious in preventing disease, but it is very, very close to 100% safe, and certainly much safer than the disease. Now, there are multiple kinds of studies one could do to prove efficacy, and each has their own kind of problems. One kind of study would be direct inoculation of influenza into really stupid volunteers who received either the vaccine or placebo. This is the simplest study to do, if you can find volunteers who want to get the flu. It lends biologic plausibility to the vaccine, but does not reflect the real world. Another study would be to give the vaccine or placebo to populations and see who develop influenza. These are not easy studies to do well. Do you diagnose flu as a flu-like illness, i.e. on clinical grounds? Do you do cultures? Do you do PCR? Do you do both to try and prove the diagnosis? Outside of a prison or military, it's hard to capture people through the entire flu season to get appropriate specimens. Or do you use other endpoints like death, antibiotic use, Hospitalization. Perhaps the flu will not be prevented but attenuated, so it is less likely to spread, and overall secondary complications of influenza will decrease in the population. This is important because many people live in unstable equilibrium, teetering on the edge, or maybe the bono, of death. It could be you too. Influenza could be the disease that nudges them off their precarious perch into that spiral leading to eternity. Influenza and pneumonia are both associated with acute myocardial infarction, i.e. heart attack. Quote, many observational studies in different settings with a range of methods reported consistent associations between influenza and acute myocardial infarction, end quote. Influenza is a risk for developing acute bacterial pneumonia. Prevent influenza and you would prevent both primary and secondary myocardial infarctions. The best proof of the concept of this effect, where vaccination in one population leads to a decrease in disease in another population, has been with the conjugated pneumococcal vaccine that is used in children, the Prevnar. This vaccine covers the seven most common strains of invasive pneumococcus in children, and uptake of this vaccine is very high. Use of the vaccine has resulted in invasive disease plummeting in children. But, as a side effect, invasive disease with the same strains Has plummeted in the elderly. Such an effect may be occurring when children are vaccinated against influenza. Quote, vaccination of approximately 20 to 25 percent of children resulted in indirect protection of 8 to 18 percent against medically attended acute respiratory illness in adults greater than 35. End quote. In the end, almost all clinical studies have limitations. For a mostly good review of the problematic nature of the studies to date, read Influenza Vaccine Policy Versus Evidence by Tom Jefferson. I say mostly good, as the conclusion from this paper is that the data is suboptimal and doesn't support widespread use of the vaccine. I will conclude, as shall be seen, that while the data may be suboptimal, it does support the use of the influenza vaccine. And, of course, I am the correct one. So, how's about those direct inoculation trials? This type of study is the most compelling for proof of concept, but is the least real world and will never be seen on MTV. Take a population of, one hopes, volunteers, and give them either the vaccine or placebo, and squirt them in the nose with influenza. This has advantages and disadvantages, but at least you know exactly when there was an infection, with what strain, and you can measure antibody levels to see if the patient had what should have been protective antibody levels. Best of all, you can control the strain of influenza to get the best antigenic match between the vaccine and the pathogen. In the real world, none of this is possible. Unless you are fool enough to walk into the room of a known influenza patient without a mask and inhale deeply. There have been a variety of direct inoculation studies with influenza over the years, and they show good efficacy. For example, quote, Protection rate from infection during homotypic, which means the same, epidemic was, retrospectively, 95%, while 50-87% to protection from influenza illness was achieved during heterotypic, i.e. not the same, epidemic. Similar results have been found for the live attenuated virus vaccine. Quote, vaccine efficacy measured by reduction in febrile or systemic illness in vaccines compared with that in controls was 100%, for H3N2 vaccine, 84% for inactivated H3N2 vaccine, 97% for H1N1 vaccine, and 67% for inactivated H1N1 vaccine. I find these types of trials compelling and that you know between placebo and treatment groups who got the vaccine and who got squirted in the face with influenza so you know that it works under the best case scenario. They also make me optimistic for the H1N1 vaccine and that the match between the virus and the vaccine is excellent and we should get high levels of protection from the vaccine in them what can mount an antibody response. But these are not real-world examples. In the real world, the vaccine may not match perfectly, the vaccine may not be handled and administered correctly, and the patient with potentially innumerable comorbid conditions may not be able to respond to the vaccine. However, I am still, barely, young, and with no medical problems yet, at least not of a psychiatric nature, and a healthcare worker who has daily contact with the old and infirm. The data above is enough for me to take the vaccine, if for no other reason than it may prevent me from passing it on to my patients. How about testing the influenza vaccine in specific groups? This is the most difficult study to do, for the reasons mentioned above. What group of people are in the study? What are the endpoints? How are they defined? And for what study period? How good is a match from the vaccine with the circulating strains of flu? All this and more make the studies for flu efficacy at best difficult to do definitively. The New England Journal of Medicine had a nice study this month on the relative efficacy of killed versus attenuated vaccine in a healthy adult population that was allowed to get seasonal flu naturally. The end point here was culture or positive PCR. They had 1,952 patients who were randomized to get either the vaccine, placebo, or the live attenuated vaccine. They found in this study the absolute efficacy against influenza A was 72% for the inactivated vaccine and 29% for the live attenuated vaccine. Perfect? No. But 72% protection from the inactivated vaccine Is not bad. And other studies have demonstrated that the live attenuated virus has efficacy rates of 50% or better. In the elderly, for example, quote, The efficacy of the live attenuated influenza virus against influenza viruses antigenically similar to the vaccine was 42%. Not bad. So as a healthcare worker, you could conclude that A, The vaccine doesn't work because it doesn't prevent influenza 100%. I don't need it. Or, the vaccine benefits my patient by perhaps preventing secondary complications and decrease their risk for death by decreasing the chance that I will get influenza. How about other studies in the general population? When in doubt, always go to the most recent Cochrane meta-analysis of vaccine efficacy. They managed to pull together 66,000 patients and in their 204 meta-analysis, they conclude, quote, vaccines are effective in reducing cases of influenza, especially when the content predicts accurately circulating types and circulation is high. However, they are less effective in reducing cases of influenza-like illness and have a modest impact on working days lost, end quote. Again, with all the qualifiers. But the overall meta-analysis suggests that the vaccines work for prevention of influenza, and the conclusion does bode well for vaccination against H1N1, which matches the current strain and is in very high circulation. I will say, as an aside, that there was an earlier Cochrane review, before 2004, that suggested that influenza cases were decreased by 6% from the vaccine. One commentator over at my Medscape blog suggested that a 6% decrease was not worth it. Let's see. About 30,000 deaths a year in the U.S. from influenza, both direct and indirect. 6% is 1,800 people saved. Maybe not cost-effective. 500,000 deaths worldwide. 6% of that is 30,000. That's a lot of deaths averted. I have always been wondering who is going to be sitting on those death panels that Palin was talking about. I think it will be the anti-flu vaccine docs. Now, since 2004 Cochrane Review, clinical trials continue to drift in looking at the efficacy of the flu vaccine. They've all shown efficacy. For example, this study. With serologic endpoints included, efficacy was demonstrated for the inactivated vaccine in a year with low influenza attack rates. Or this study... Quote, the absolute efficacy of the inactivated vaccine against both types of virus was 77%, and the absolute efficacies of a live attenuated virus was 57%. Hmm. Another placebo-controlled trial that said this. Achieving a vaccine efficacy of 51%, a well-matched influenza vaccine is effective in preventing influenza-like illness and reducing sickness absence in healthcare workers in tropical settings. End quote. But wait, there's more. If you call now, not only will you get the above studies, but we will add, at no additional cost to you, the following. In all four studies, the incidence of influenza was lower in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated subjects. End quote. That was a study in HIV population. Now, it may be a file-drawer effect and negative studies are not being published, but the studies consistently show benefits from the vaccine, and the benefit is variable depending on the circulating strain, the vaccine match, and the population vaccinated. But the vaccine is beneficial nonetheless. How about population studies? The most compelling population data comes from Ontario, Canada, where they have had an ongoing attempt to maximally vaccinate the whole population against influenza. The other provinces have not seen fit to try and vaccinate everyone, continuing with targeted influenza vaccination. This represents an interesting natural experiment. If the effects of the influenza vaccine are less in preventing disease, but more in decreasing secondary endpoints like death, hospitalization, or antibiotic use due to milder illness, it may show up in population studies. There are numerous issues with this kind of studies, but they are, quote, appropriate for assessing the public health impact of a population-wide intervention, end quote. During the period of reference, Ontario experienced greater uptake of vaccine than any other province. What was the effect? Quote, after UIIP introduction, influenza-associated mortality for the overall population decreased 74% in Ontario, compared with 57% in other provinces. They also found fewer people going to the doctor and a decrease in antibiotic use. So it could very well be that the secondary effects of the vaccine are more important than primarily preventing me from getting influenza. It's the old rising tide lifting all boats effect. The study that really needs to be done would be to vaccinate everybody west of the Mississippi and vaccinate no one to the east. Prevent travel between the two parts of the country. See who gets influenza. See who dies. Now that would be an epidemiologic study. The study is in contrast to the Tom Jefferson paper that several, apparently not so thrilled with the vaccine folks, have sent me that says, "quote A meta-analysis of inactivated vaccines in elderly people showed a gradient from no effect against influenza or influenza-like illness to a large effect in preventing all-cause mortality. Here's where it gets weird. These findings are both counterintuitive and impossible, as other causes of death are far more prevalent in elderly people even in the winter months. It is impossible for a vaccine that does not prevent influenza to prevent its complications, including admission to the hospital. That, again, is binary approach to the vaccine and bullshit. If you have a milder case of flu due to the vaccine, that will lead to a milder illness with pre- fewer complications and death. And if you have a milder illness, you're less likely to spread it on to others. It is only impossible if you do not recognize that the influenza vaccine, unfortunately, is not like the tetanus vaccine, but its effects are more of a continuum due to partial effects on the person getting the vaccine and the hard-to-measure benefits of being less likely to spread the disease. Tom Jefferson, and what a great name if you're going to be a gadfly, therefore concludes that 1. Influenza is rare – And because of one, the vaccine is not needed. Quote, seasonal influenza is a relatively rare and benign condition with an incidence not exceeding 100% in the general population during autumn and winter months. Now, I will always get in trouble trying to argue with statistics with a statistician, but he calls 1% incidence of a disease rare. 1% of the U.S. population is 3 million people. That's a lot of people. When you look at the New England Journal of Medicine article... On flu vaccine, as an example, where the endpoint was culture or PCR-proven influenza, 35 of the 325 in the placebo group of normal healthy adults got flu during the study period, or 10.8%. And the Cochrane Review estimates the incidence of influenza during the season at 7%. The incidence of influenza in reality seems to be higher than Jefferson's calculations and remind me of somebody trying to prove, based on their calculations, that bumblebees can't fly. He also says, quote, In the case of an inactivated influenza vaccine, the key issue in interpreting the data is over-reliance on nonspecific outcomes, such as death from all causes, which may have little to do with influenza-related deaths. Actually, death from all causes have everything to do with influenza-related deaths. What kills people is a bad heart and a bad lung, and their physiology can't cope with the stress of influenza. It's the secondary deaths from influenza that are the most important with this disease, and I don't think Mr. Jefferson appreciates that clinical truism. I do not think that the overall data supports this contention and really undervalues the secondary benefits of vaccination in populations, as I have discussed earlier. Take that narrow perspective and combine it with a dash of conspiracy paranoia. Quote, this is from Mr. Jefferson, In addition, the powerful image of influenza depicted by the media is not proportional to the actual threat. Not true. The monster-at-your-door fame of influenza helps to create preventative expectations that are unachievable with today's technology. Maybe true. And only partial reading of the evidence. Yes, which is what Mr. Jefferson has done, ignoring both the primary studies of prevention with direct inoculation and the population-based studies that show influenza is of efficacy. For example, we know that in the past two decades, influenza vaccines have risen in prominence in the scientific media. Uh Uh-oh, here it comes. Possibly as a result of pharmaceutical sponsorship. And the need for larger journals to boost the revenue by selling bulk pre- reprints and subscriptions to offset the decline in print-based returns. End quote. Bah, 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 bah. It's all just a scam to raise money, right? In my mind, that is the true benefit of the influenza vaccine: decreasing the morbidity and mortality of populations. The benefit for populations is derived through vaccinating individuals. That requires a bit of altruism on the part of those receiving the vaccine, as they may be getting vaccinated more for the benefit of others than for themselves. However, at least in the U.S., it seems that a premium is currently being placed on being a self-centered narcissist and indirectly helping others, even for a few MDs and RNs, is apparently not on everybody's to-do list. So, does the influenza vaccine work? Depends on what the meaning of is is. If you are simplistic and like binary answers, yes or no, then you can pick yes or you can pick no and find studies to support your contention that the vaccine doesn't work. If you realize that medicine is subtle and nuanced and often the answers are filled with qualifiers and uncertainty that the practice of medicine is messy, I think the answer is that the flu vaccine is of benefit that the more people who get the vaccine, the greater the benefit for everyone. You do not know how much it pains me to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but he was partly right when he said, You go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. It is true in medicine as well. My army is the vaccine and the data used to support it. You can conclude that neither the vaccine nor the data is perfect and decide that the vaccine is not useful. Or you can look at the preponderance of data with all the flaws and nuance and subtleties and qualifiers and conclude that the flu vaccine is of benefit. The vaccine decreases the probability of morbidity and mortality. And that is a good thing. So, with that as background, let's look at 18 more terididdles. All thanks to Bill Sardi and his article, 18 Reasons Why You Should NOT... Vaccinate your children against the flu this season. I shouted the knot because it was in all caps. And I will paraphrase some of his 18 reasons. 1. This is another flu and it's not all that fatal. Yeah, tell that to somebody who dies. It is true that it does not appear to be a particularly virulent strain of flu for most people. However, this strain has not been seen in the world since about 1957. And basically, everybody who was born after 1950, about 60% of the population, has no immunity. So when you have large numbers of people at risk for influenza, and even if you have a small number of deaths from influenza, that will translate to a large number of people. It is also disproportionately killing children. Number two. Health authorities tacitly admit prior flu vaccination programs were of worthless value. Now, if you have listened to what I have said so far, you will understand that the health authorities have tacitly admitted nothing of the sort, and that that is crap. Number three, because there have been mismatches in prior year, why do you think this year's will match? Well, the H1N1, a.k.a. the swine flu, should have an excellent match. We know exactly what the circulating strain is, and this should be a superb vaccine on that basis. But every year, the vaccine is a bit of an immunologic gamble. Number four, beware of adjuvants. Mercury, thimerosal, aluminum, and squalene. First, thimerosal is an antiseptic, not an adjuvant. You're going to trust a man who doesn't know his adjuvant from an antiseptic. Also, thimerosal is not the same as elemental mercury, which is used in thermometers, and I played with elemental mercury all the time as a kid, and I'm okay. Thimerosal is ethyl which I'm sure I pronounced wrong. It's a mercury compound. It is a little like worrying about chlorine. Now, chlorine is a gas that killed thousands in World War I, but it's also in sodium chloride, table salt. And thimerosal is only found in multi-dose vials. Aluminum? Aluminum is not in the influenza vaccine. It's not used as an adjuvant in the United States. Squalene? Well, this is used in Europe, but not in the United States vaccine. And just so you know, squalene is a precursor of cholesterol synthesis. You make more squalene each day, than is found in the European version of the flu vaccine. So here's a source that is saying don't get the flu vaccine because it contains compounds that, in fact, they do not contain. Is that a source you can trust? Number five, the flu vaccine is experimental. Nope, same old vaccine, made the same old way. Now, if you say your Ford has a new color and a stereo, but the same body frame and engine, do you say Ford is making an experimental car? No. Six. Kids are over-vaccinated with 29 vaccines by the age of two. I wrote about this at length over at Science Based Medicine. The bottom line is what the disease does in terms of both antigen load and morbidity and mortality is many, many logs greater than any vaccine. Number seven. Health officials want to vaccinate women during their pregnancy, subjecting fetal brain to an intentional biological assault. Now, first remember that influenza is not a live virus. You can't get infected by the flu vaccine. This is akin to arguing you can be trampled to death by hamburger because it's part of a cow. Number 8. Modern medicine has no explanation for autism, despite its continued rise in prevalence. Yet autism is not reported in Amish children who go unvaccinated. Not true. The Amish do have autism. Beware the falsehoods of anti-vaxxers. 9. School kids are likely to receive nasally administrative vaccine that require no needle injection. This live vaccine produces viral shedding, which will surely be transmitted to family members. What a way to start an epidemic. The flu mist is genetically engineered, da 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 da, not to spread from person to person. And this has happened just once. It is cold adapted and can't go outside of your nose and survive, unless, of course, it's on your finger, which has been in your nose, which then you directly poke in some other person's nose. Number 10, the triple reassortment virus appears to be man made. What nonsense! The genome of influenza is segmented, and this sort of reassortments happen with regularity. It's called genetic shift, and this is what causes pandemics. This demonstrates a total lack of understanding of flu biology and does not particularly inspire confidence. Number 11. The 1976 swine flu vaccine was a bust, so this is as well. What was a bust in 1976 was the H1N1 influenza which turned out to have low infectivity and for one time only a slight increase in the neurologic syndrome Guillain-Barré. Number 12. Antibiotics in the vaccine will apply genetic pressure for the flu to mutate into a more virulent strain. Virulence and antibiotic resistance are two different things, and people confuse this all the time. Resistance to antibiotics does not necessarily lead to increased virulence, Just resistance. Tamiflu will not make influenza more virulent, just resistance to Tamiflu and therefore harder to treat. And if antibody will make the virus more virulent, then antibody from vaccine or antibody from natural infection will have the same effect. But again, that is not not how flu gets more virulent. It gets more virulent by acquiring new genes, not by mutating in the face of antibiotics. Thirteen, seasonal flu is resistant to Tamiflu. That's a non sequitur. To me, that's all the more reason to get the vaccine. Number fourteen, as the flu season progresses, the federal government may coerce or mandate Americans to undergo vaccination, unquote. Now, why this is a reason not to vaccinate your child is not clear, but the reasoning becomes increasingly obtuse as the list grows. Number fifteen, 36,000 annual flu-related deaths are bogus. Well, you should go read my science-based medicine blog on that. Then they go on to say, maybe just, just, only, if it was your mother, would that be an only? Maybe just five to 6,000 so-called flu-related deaths occur annually, mostly among individuals with compromised immune system, the hospitalized, individuals with autoimmune disease, and other health problems. Oh... They deserve to die. They were sick. We're just culling the herd. And I talked at length about the importance of herd immunity with the vaccine. You help others and yourself when you get the influenza vaccine. Number 16. The news media is irresponsible in stirring up unfounded fear over this coming flu season, and child deaths are overreported. As I write this, 76 kids have died of H1N1 more than have died from seasonal flu last year. Kids are going to die out of proportion with H1N1, and the only thing that will probably prevent this is the flu vaccine. I always figure that we have two choices. We can over-prepare and look the fool, or underprepare prepare and look incompetent. Until the pandemic is upon us and past us, only then do we know how much preparation we should have done with the hindsight being 2020, I would rather look a fool, and incompetent. Number 17. Rely on vitamin C, D, and selenium instead. The only plausible explanation as to why flu season typically peaks in the winter months is deficiency of sunlight-produced vitamin D. Really? The only plausible explanation? Not crowding or humidity or other potential etiologies? Most things in medicine are multifactorial. Unless, of course... You're one of those alt medicine folks who likes the binary it's vitamin D or no vitamin D and nothing in between. Number 18, will we ever learn if the flu vaccine this year is deadly in itself? In 1993, the federal government had a deadly flu vaccine that killed thousands of nursing home patients. No, what happened in 1993 was a strain of influenza H3N2 that predominated that season. And that has always had higher morbidity and mortality among the elderly. Again, the elderly aren't going to respond well to the vaccine. The way you prevent them from getting the flu is to prevent them from being exposed. And that's why people like you and me need to get the flu vaccine. And so that's the somewhat tedious quack cast 35. I hope you weren't listening to this while driving a car because you're probably in a ditch right now. sound asleep. Others have mentioned that my voice is very soothing and puts them to sleep. You're getting sleepy, sleepy. Now remember, I have two other podcasts my Puscast, a review of the infectious disease literature, and my Gavit Opus, my sort of day to day, what it's like to be an infectious disease podcast. I also have two blogs, Rubor, Dolor, Kalor, Tumor, over at Medscape and twice a month at sciencebasedmedicine.org. My multimedia empire is expanding because the world needs more Mark Crislip. And finally, go to iTunes and write me a glowing review. My voracious ego needs constant feeding.